Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. Another episode of Movie House Memories, the podcast where we look back and review the films that we think are the most important films in cinema history. I'm Patrick, and with me this week are three people who spent a large portion of their lives in darkened movie theaters. First, he's our resident lumberjack and our on our homegrown Wayne Grow. And he's the man who sees symbolism in his cornflakes. He's one of the co-hosts of the Criterion Critics and Lunchtime Movie Review podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network and the host of his own YouTube f- film review, Viewing and Reviewing, Bobby Taylor. And I've got my fully automatic sitting right here in my lap. Okay. <laughs> it won't go off during the podcast, I'm afraid. Well, I understand that as you get older, that becomes a more recurring problem, but that's all right. But... Also with us, uh, she has appeared as one of the co-hosts as Sunday Seconds with the Duke, the John Wayne Retrospective Podcast, as well as the Golden Age with, as well as the Golden Age of the Silver Screen Podcast, both here on the MHN Podcast Network. The sole female voice of the show and my podcast better half, Lori Flores. Hello. It's been thirty seconds, and I still don't get that joke. Yeah, you keep thinking about it, but finally. He's one of the co-hosts of the Male Bonding James Bond Retrospective Podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network. You can follow him on Twitter at HeyBucker, Matt Palmer. As you guys know, I never record a podcast that I cannot walk out on in 30 seconds if I spot the heat around the corner. (laughs) All right. Welcome, everyone. And before we get started, we'd like to thank all of the returning listeners of the show and welcome all new listeners to Movie House Memories. Thanks for downloading us and giving us a try. We appreciate your time and attention and hope you keep on listening and following us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, you can now subscribe to our account on YouTube, where we're releasing our podcasts exclusively. Once there, uh, if you subscribe to our account and ring the notifications bell, you can get uh, updates of when we post new material. You can also give us a like or a dislike, or leave a comment about the show, our opinions about the film, and a film you would like to see reviewed as one of the top 100 films of all time. Of course, we always like the feedback that is positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. Well, with the horrible business out of the way, let's get on to Matt's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time, 1995's Heat with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. And Matt, do you have a summary? I have something of a summary right here. All right. Well, you let me hear about it. All right. Can you tell me a story? A talented crew of professional thieves, Neil Chris, Michael Trejo, and Wayne Grow, rob an armored car. Wayne Grow kills one of the guards unprovoked, which requires the rest of the crew to kill the other guards. After the job, the crew attempts to kill Wayne Grow, but he escapes them. 
LAPD Lieutenant Hannah investigates the crime and pursues Neil and his crew. Lieutenant Hannah is more married to his work than his wife, which strains their relationship, including with his stepdaughter, Lauren. Lieutenant Hannah works tirelessly to build a case against Neil and his guys. Hannah investigates the murder of a prostitute. It's tied to Wayne Grow, who serially murders prostitutes. Meanwhile, Neil begins to date a young woman. He lies to her and tells her he's a salesman. He and his crew find one last score so big they take the risk. They plan to rob a bank. While they're planning the job, Hannah pulls Neil over on the freeway and the two of them share coffee. They conclude that either one would not hesitate to kill the other if necessary. But Lieutenant Hannah doesn't have enough evidence on Neil to arrest him, so the two part ways. The crew was nearly murdered by a sketchy financier, Van Zant, when attempting to sell the bonds they stole in the armored car job. They swear to kill him. Van Zant hires Wayne Grow to kill the crew and ensure his safety. Van Zant gets word of the crew's bank job and tips the police. Trejo discovers he's being followed, so the crew pulls parolee Don Breeden back into crime to act as their driver for the bank job. LAPD accosts them as they're leaving the bank, and a massive shootout ensues. Multiple cops are shot. Neil and Chris escape after Chris is shot. Michael is shot dead trying to escape. Breeden is shot and killed. Neil gets to Trejo's house and finds him shot up, his family murdered. Trejo reveals that Wayne Grow and Van Zant were the reason the job was known to police. Neil busts into Van Zant's home and murders him. Lauren, Hannah's uh, stepdaughter, attempts suicide. He saves her and rushes her to the hospital. Meanwhile, the police use Wayne Grow as bait to try to capture Neil. Neil sets off a fire alarm at the hotel where Wayne Grow is staying in order to get Wayne to his room and kill him. But he's spotted by Hannah. He attempts to escape on the runway at LAX airport where he's pursued by Hannah. After an intense hunt, Hannah shoots Neil and holds his hand out of respect as he dies. All right. Films are influenced by the times they're made in. And we look back at some of the big news events and Lori Flores' headlines of the time. The year was 1995. Windows 95 was released. The Oklahoma City Federal Building was bombed. There was a nerve gas attack in a Tokyo subway, and the British Barings Bank collapsed. Um, the top 10 films released in 1995 were Die Hard with a Vengeance, Toy Story, Apollo 13, GoldenEye, Pocahontas, Batman Forever, Seven, Casper, Waterworld, and Jumanji. And that was 1995. All right. We usually start by talking about the casting of the film. Start with Matt, since this is his pick. Uh, the lead in this technically is Al Pacino, although I, I think there's definitively two leads, but he got top billing. Matt, what did you think of Mr. Pacino playing Lieutenant Vincent Han Hanna? You know, I, 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 of course, like and respect Al Pacino, but a lot of times I, I feel like I'm watching, you know, Al Pacino, Al Pacino, his way through a movie. <laughs> um, he's kind of like a Jeff Goldblum you know, somebody who, who who just kind of always does his thing. His thing happens to be perfect for this movie. So I, I have no complaints. I just don't normally feel really wrapped up in a, in a Pacino performance. Maybe some of you will disagree, but no complaints. It fits perfectly, and, and I think he just does what he does. 
Well, Matt said he likes and respects Pacino. I respect Pacino. I don't really like him. But just like Matt said, he was perfect for the role. He, he Al Pacinoed this role to death, which is exactly what the way it was written. Uh, Michael Mann, the director, writer-director of this, knew exactly what he was doing with Pacino and De Niro being together for the first time since The Godfather 2. So this is actually their first time on screen together. So I, I appreciated very much what Al Pacino did in the role. It's just that he, he tends to get – he overacts a little too much, which thankfully the script was built for that. But um, otherwise, he was, he was quite good for the role. It was just I'm not a big fan of him overall. I like Pacino, but in this film, it took it took me a while to warm up to him. But by his character, but by the end of the film, I did really like him. But I, I think I think his acting was was spot on. I don't have any complaints. All right. Well, let me be the <laughs> opposing voice. You know, I I do like Al Pacino. I liked him a lot better when he didn't Al Pacino the shit out of the shit stuff. And he did that a lot in the 90s, starting with Dick Tracy and just continuing on throughout the next 10 years. And I think he's doing the same thing here. I mean, there's there's scenes where he is just so over the top. The scene with Hank Azaria that apparently surprised the shit out of Hank Azaria when he did it, uh, the line. Uh, but. I, I I don't disagree that it, it potentially fits the role better in this than it does like Son of a Woman or, you know, the insider. <laughs> but it, it's just it's it just it's who he, he the character he kind of became in the 90s, which is unfortunate because I thought I think some of his best work was behind him at that particular moment in time, although he's done some smaller things in the last 20 years that I think are pretty substantial. But uh, I, I, I was not a big fan of Al Pacino in the nineties and this would, this would be one of those films that I just, I, okay. All right. That's a choice. That's a distinct choice, but whatever. Uh, but what about Robert De Niro playing Neil McCauley in this film? I thought he was wonderful. I, I really did. I, I, I don't know how many De Niro films where he's the true bad guy, where he's ultimately – I mean he's he's the leader of this crew, which they're obviously on opposite sides. But I, even – I think both characters, the Pacino character and the De Niro, they both walked in gray areas. They had – he at least as a criminal had some – some rules that he lived by uh, that that he would die by and i think that 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 came across really well here and i thought that as much as pacino overacted a lot in the 90s i think de niro this was his pro one, probably one of his best final roles before he started turning into a bit of the meet the parents caricature of himself but i really liked him in this role uh, wonderful he was a, a 10 out of 10 in this one um i Agree. I I really liked him in this role. I really liked De Niro, and I really liked this character. Um, I just felt it was a really well developed character, and I actually sympathized way too much with this character more than I should have. Yeah, he he plays this this role to perfection, and it's written so well. In, in that you you kind of understand this guy. In, in a way, he's so. Um, He's he's urbane and he's he's sophisticated and he has impeccable self control, 
in a way you, you kind of think you could trust this guy, you could work with him, but he's just a, a stone cold killer. You know, he's just so incredibly professional that you forget he, he's a complete psychopath. And um, it, I think this is this is an incredibly difficult role to play and and almost nobody could have played it. And it was so well written. And it's where where writing and acting and directing came together so well to create a character that is, um, you know, not not necessarily all there on the surface. But the more you look at them, the more uh, kind of horrifying a thing there is there. And um, it's it's incredibly well done. You, you know, as much as I just kind of crapped all over Al Pacino, uh, Robert De Niro is phenomenal in this film. And I, I kind of just piggybacking on everything Matt, well, actually all three of you just said, he's, he's just so perfectly cast and it's such a different role for him. I mean, he too, I thought had this progressive kind of downhill slide as far as roles he chose throughout from the beginning of the nineties to the end of the nineties. But this is one of the standouts of that decade. And this is, this is the Robert De Niro of, of old where he really does inhabit a character and really be, uh, just takes over the, the, the screen from whoever he's with. And, and that's saying a lot because with Al Pacino kind of chewing up scenery, he, it's almost him screaming, look at me, look at me. But it's the quiet subtlety that Robert De Niro brings to it that I thought was much more captivating in, in the performance. And that's why I liked him so much better than Al Pacino in this. Uh, but th this was a very stellar cast and much more so than I even remembered. But I went with the third lead in this, which was Val Kilmer uh, playing Chris in the film. Lori, what did you think of Val Kilmer? Well, you know, I'm a huge Val Kilmer fan and I didn't think about that. I was watching Val Kilmer. I thought he, um, he just embodied this role. I thought he was, I thought he was Chris. I didn't look at him and think of, um, Willow or anything. Um, <laughs> uh, me too. I, Val Kilmer's done some great work and I think this is the best of some, some really good work he's done. He, um, as a supporting, supporting character, again, just brought a lot of, a lot of depth there. Uh, felt like he knew this character very well and, he was he was perfect for it. I, I really liked it. Again, I think there's more going on there than we can see on the surface. And I think he, he really leaned into this role and did a great job. I agree with both guys. Um, Val Kilmer is one of my favorites from that time, and he is a wonderful actor. What I saw was it was a lot like his Tombstone character, the Doc Holliday, without the drugs involved, even though Chris was a little bit on the, the weird side. As a supporting actor, Val Kilmer is one of the greats, um, definitely of the era. Uh, I mean, look at Top Gun, Tombstone, this. I mean, he's even in – if you go forward into Kiss Kiss Bang Bang into the 2000s, he's just wonderful as the – as the sidekick, but he doesn't, he never takes away from the people that are around him. He's just, he, your eye is drawn to him. But like you were saying earlier, Patrick, when, um, when De Niro is on screen, he commands your, your, all of your attention, but there's Chris sitting right there next to you. And you know that that is, that's not Val Kilmer. That is Chris, the, weird crook uh you know that's dumping on his his wife or ex-wife i think she's his wife and what i also liked about it was even the ashley judd character which was very underwritten i thought 
but she was you could tell that there was a real heat between those two so that when the time comes towards that end when they have to have their ultimate final decision you actually felt that there was some real pain there between those two characters and i really enjoyed that uh that dynamic between those two very un unmatched actors so i thought that was really well done but yes val kilmer was spectacular as good as de niro was i thought kilmer was almost on par you know it's it's where you say that I, I i think val kilmer is much more talented as a supporting uh, actor than as a lead uh, i think he struggles with material when he's a lead actor although there are exceptions uh kiss kiss bang bang being one of them uh, but the doors the doors okay okay now you're gonna point out some one of my favorite performances from him but i mean he's great as supporting in tombstone he's a great supporting in this film um, I, I would almost say he's a co-lead with Robert Downey Jr. in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Top Gun, so I'm not going to speak to that one. But he, th- that seems to be his history. And I really admire the guy because at this point in time, he's, I mean, he was on fire. He'd just come out of Tombstone. He just made a Batman movie. I mean, he was in demand. People wanted him for things. And he took a supporting role in a film so he could act with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. And, you know, just kind of to appreciate this is this is an opportunity that doesn't come along very often i mean at that point this is the only time the two of them have been on screen together and so he appreciated the material and said hey i'll i'll do it and i'll do it for less and i think his 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 uh what he asked for is hey just put me on the poster uh with the two of them and that and he got it you know that was that that was the big sale for him to do it so i i really admire that he you know he was interested in his craft and just wanted to work with talented people uh and be in you know high caliber uh, projects like this and and it probably ex- explains a long a lot of his longevity uh in a career all right matt what about moral universe in this film no no morality in this film no <laughs> i um I think that this movie interests me most when the characters are are trying to decide what they value most because we we have these characters different values coming in conflict with each other in these these very dramatic ways and on you know on on Al Pacino's side on on the policeman's side obviously his his family's falling apart and he's he's kind of so dedicated to his job that ultimately that it's continually destroying different families of his and, and nearly killing them sometimes on the other side though the the robert de niro character has has traditionally lived by this code and convinced himself that you know don't have anything in your life you can't walk away from if you feel the heat around the corner but we, we kind of have hints that that um that's not his prime you know, value in his life. Cause I even think his relationship with Val Kilmer's character is, is in violation of that all along and that he's got this guy who's not as professional as he is or can be, but his personal life is a mess kind of pushes him into this, this bank job. And then in the end, you know, those values really, really come into conflict with one, this girl he's fallen in love with. He can't walk away from her. And two, his his desire for revenge, because instead of walking, he has to go and exact vengeance on Van Zandt and Wayne Grow. So, you know, it's that it's that professionalism that's embodied in that that walk away ethos of his that comes into conflict with the more uh, 
primal, the more human side of him that wants to, um, you know, fight and, and be with a woman. So I think, um, his professionalism was such that, that really, you know, killing, stealing anything else was, was subject to it. But, um, at the end of the day, you know, he cared more about vengeance and, and his girlfriend. I think Matt is right on all, on all counts. I, I wouldn't really add anything to it uh, other than to say that it isn't just the, the leads, uh, the, the three main characters that in the film that are, that have the, these dilemmas. I think this is such a deep story um, that I think there's a whole bunch of characters that, struggle with that uh the the moral universe so i I think you could just kind of lay out each one of them and i think it'd be an interesting character study in a psychology class uh, as a film uh for for people to to break down but no matt is dead on on all of those well done yeah i agree and and like um matt said it was that he he had to get revenge was his downfall that he didn't follow his own code of walking away within 30 seconds and it killed him. Well, and it, it does. And obviously that's where it was kind of leading, but I thought the similarities between the two leads, the, the two characters is that they, they so long for connection, but they're so focused on their, uh, for lack of a better term, careers. I mean, uh, Hannah has a career. Macaulay has a calling and, and, you know, Macaulay talks about you have to be able to walk away. But I, I agree with what kind of what, uh, you know, um, Matt just said that he couldn't walk away from Chris. I mean, he he was very focused. He was very loyal to Chris. And he, you know, he wanted to make sure Chris was going to be OK. And he did not care for Chris's, you know, oh, I guess it's his wife. But it was it was it was wife. Right. It wasn't girlfriend. It was wife. But, you know, I think it, it was wife. Yeah. And. You know, she, you know, he, he kind of downplayed her, but he, I think he was very, very jealous of her. And then you have Al Pacino, who I think he said at one point that he was on his third marriage and that the job is kind of what drives him. And he, he can't open up about that and he, and therefore never makes a connection and yet they're both longing for a connection and this, the, the parallels between these two, um, you know, ultimately the, the connection is what is the downfall for uh, Macaulay and the fact that Hannah kind of doesn't have that connection at that moment. I mean, he, he responds to the pager when Natalie Portman's in the hospital and she says, you know, kind of go that that relationship is essentially come to an end, or at least that's how I read it is that, you know, you, you need to go do this and there's no reason for you to be here any longer. And so he goes, uh, and it's, you know, the, uh, I think the interesting kind of the comparison there that, that that connection to the girl and the desire to get revenge on the people that have wronged him is brings Macaulay down. And then Hannah, the, the severing that connection allows him to be, be in the right place at the right time to finally catch Macaulay. Uh, Bobby, what about symbolism and hidden meetings? If there are any, <laughs> well, there are, I'm sure there's a whole lot more than mine. I've only got two this time. Um, I do have, of actually where Wayne Gross symbolized Neil's tonight he was a super 
until he had to clean up one last mess for his perfect crew, which led to his downfall. And I know the Van Zant thing that I think that was the intent all along was to take out Van Zant. So I don't think that was really a an afterthought. I, but Wayne Grow, he was on his way to the uh, Neil was on his way to the airport, or he was at the airport um, when he when he got tipped off on Wayne Grow. So that one there was the whole. I mean, that was his total. It symbolized his his downfall. And then the last one I have is Vincent's TV symbolized his connection to an alternate reality where he wasn't a super cop, his wife wasn't screwing around, and his stepdaughter wasn't a mess. And when it broke, he was back to reality. So that kind of touched on what you were just talking about, Patrick. That's it. Yeah, I I, I really appreciate that. I, Wayne Grow is such an interesting guy because he's kind of the um He's kind of the the Val Kilmer on the other end of the spectrum from where Robert De Niro is, where his his kind of um, lust uh, for for sex and murder is completely out of control. Right. Whereas Val Kilmer has these personal vices, but is so dedicated to his his wife. Wayne Grow is is the psychopath part run amok. And it's weird to watch them all work together. Um, it, it, you know, it's kind of shocking. The first time I saw this movie, we were like, oh, my gosh, these guys are just killers. And Wayne Grow is is the unbridled, unprofessional killing part that exists uh, controlled in in Robert De Niro. When I was watching it and I was like, he's getting your serial killer. <laughs> so I had I think just because the character was so well written and De Niro was so good, I, I felt the most sympathy for that character. I just, which was disturbing, honestly. You know, I just kept thinking he's getting the, he's he's getting the most heinous <laughs> character out of the way um, in what he's doing. So I, I couldn't separate that when I was watching it. Say, saying that him, Yes, so, killing Wayne Grow. Kill, killing Wayne Grow is what you were secretly cheering for. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> but Wayne Grow set up so so well at the beginning of the film of just kind of this, you know, loose cannon that just for, you know, just gets lucky in his escape, um, and then you kind of get these little 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 vignettes of him throughout the entirety of the film where he's affecting uh, Macaulay and Chris the, and their operations to the point where there has to be a consequence. There has to be a comeuppance for him, not just for what he did in the armor car robbery at the very beginning, but for basically getting them all set up throughout the entirety of it. it, it you know, um, it's hard to look at this film. You know, Bobby says there's probably a lot more. I don't know if there really is. <laughs> I really, really don't. I mean, I, I don't think I think this film is very, very surface material. And and I, I appreciate the, the things you did find in it. It's uh, it's Michael Mann is not known for subtlety, uh, at least in my experience. And he does a, a, a you know, in this case, this is I mean, this is a L.A. version of Miami Vice. I mean, cops wearing Armani and uh, being over the top. But I mean, there's. I, I I didn't think that there was anything really, really too surface material of, of other than the characterizations of the two leads themselves. All right. Shane's not here, unfortunately, again, um, we've, unfortunately, he is uh, working diligently in Australia, but he wanted to let us know that this is a perfect pitch of a film. Uh, but his section is usually the music. Not a lot of orchestration in this uh, 
composed by Elliot Goldenthal. They actually used composed music by a popular artist. What did you guys think of Goldenthal's music? I can't even remember it. It didn't. <laughs> seriously, I it didn't. I can't even re- recall it. And I just watched it yesterday. <laughs> Matt. Yeah, I watched it a couple months ago, and I can't remember it either, although I seem to recall being a little bothered by it at times, especially when Al Pacino was on screen. So I, I, I think I, I'll, I'll give it neither a thumbs up nor a thumbs down. I'm with Matt. It's neither a thumbs up or a thumbs down. I, it's it's not really memorable. However, the sound is insane in this film the the shootouts the the guns the the sound effects are are truly uh classed by themselves i i i put this on for my wife and i and she left the room because it was a little too violent but i said you got to watch this one scene and when we did i just turned up the stereo and it's in it is truly overwhelming the amount of of gunfire and my understanding is the the sound effects uh they did something special to make it sound even louder than than it it normally would so i i got to give kudos to the sound engineers not necessarily the musicians as much as just the guys that know how to make a gunfire sound like a gun all right. Well, as you agreed with Matt, I'm going to agree with Lori. I watched this about a week ago and the music was forgettable. I don't remember it at all, uh, which is not really a good sign. I, now, what I understand is there, as I said, there was a lot of popular music or 90s music in the film. Uh, and so you didn't have as much orchestration by Goldenthal. And I but I don't remember any single piece that stood out to me at any point in time, even during the shootout. I know it was there. I just don't distinctly remember it. And I guess that's neither good nor bad, but it really doesn't, you know, doesn't speak that it was a a really compelling piece of music if it didn't really engage me that well. But I will agree with Bobby about the sound for the, the gunfire, especially in the shootout downtown after the bank robbery that they, uh, I, I think they had more microphones placed around, the, the kind of the square that they were in to, to try to pick up the onset uh, gunfire. So it was much more pronounced. And there was no music during that, by no. the way, it was just gunfire. No, that was just gunfire. That was just, yes. they focused on that entirely. Yep. All right. Ending of the film film ends with Hannah getting his man, Macaulay not going back to prison as he said he was. Uh, and it was, you know, you're going to have to kill him. And in this case, Hannah did. There was an, uh, an alternative version written at one point where Hannah and Macaulay kill each other in the final shootout. Uh, what did you guys think of the actual ending of the film? And what do you think of the basically dual murders at the same time? I didn't like the ending. As much as I love this film, I thought the ending was wrong. Of course, you have to. I mean, it's a Hollywood ending, so you have to have the the good guy wins, bad guy goes down. Um, even the alternate ending where they both would have shot each other would have been wrong. Um, the truth is, is that Neil was a super criminal. He knew how to kill. And I got to say, the ending went on way too long when they're wandering around darkness and shadows and light and Al Pacino is literally walking out into the open, I don't know, five, six, seven, ten times. 
I, I mean, Neil, if he's a good shot, could have taken out Pacino at any time. So I, I think they got the ending wrong. I think Neil should have killed Pacino, would have put Pacino out of his misery. Neil would have just jumped on his plane, flown off with his girlfriend uh, to a life of of non-criminality and everybody wins. So I think that's the ending that would have been right. So, no, I do not like how this ending this ended. I liked the ending. I really liked the um, the lighting with the airplanes and and how it would go dark and then the plane would come. And I just thought that was just a really neat effect. I was rooting for De Niro to survive. Spoilers, but I, I did like the ending. It was, and I I didn't think it was a Hollywood ending. And I don't think that. Um, Edie would have gone with them. She was pretty spooked by what she saw. I think. I don't. I don't think they would have had a happy ending, even if he had survived. But that's just my take. Yeah, I, I found myself like Lori, just kind of instinctively, emotionally hoping De Niro left and lived a peaceful life. I think she's also right that that relationship was was doomed from the from the outset, anyways. Um, and I, I agree with Chris that I think the the scene could have been better executed. It wasn't as intense as they wanted it to be. But I, I think that the story set itself up for this ending. And, and in reality, the other ending might have been more appropriate. And that's just because he he violated his code. Right. He, he you can't. You can't violate your code twice in two huge ways and then not pay a price for it and have any kind of you know satisfying setup and payoff for the movie. So that ending was baked into it as soon as he went after Wayne Grow and, and really as soon as he 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 you know took his took his girlfriend with him. Um, and the same with with Pacino, really he he it probably would have been a better ending had they shot each other. Because he left his family in in the hospital at a time where they probably needed him more than a criminal needed to be caught. So if anything, that may have been a a failure of the writers there to to give us kind of the policeman wins ending when the policeman had had sold so much to to do that. Well, (laughs) well. I'll agree with you that uh, Macaulay had to die because they spent as much time with that explanation of you have to give everything up within within 30 seconds if you see the police coming. <laughs> that the moment he violates his rules, you know he's 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 a goner. Uh, despite Laurie's hope that he doesn't, uh, it's to me it's a foregone conclusion. I you know I I could have seen Pacino dying in this very easily because they both live by a code, and I think they're both somewhat tragic characters. Is that neither one of them are ever will find happiness other than Pacino in successfully catching someone and Macaulay in successfully getting away. Uh, so I could see the other ending being filmed and I could even see it working somewhat. I not totally satisfied with the ending. I kind of agree with Bobby. It goes on too long and it it, there at least for, for Pacino's sake, it's just seems to be like, yeah, you should be covering behind things. You know, you shouldn't be walking out in the open and it seems to just abandon 
basic training for law enforcement uh, during that shootout scene. So I, I some of it really kind of just bothers me from a, a professional standpoint, <laughs> but oh well. All right, Films Legacy, nominated for, and I know I messed this up and I'd never sent the correction one out there, but nominated for no Academy Awards, not a single one, despite it being an incredibly popular film in 1995. AFI, the film was nominated one of the 400 movies for the top 100 movies, 100 thrills list, didn't make the top 100. It is, however, on IMDb's top 250 films list, ranked currently at number 111. Uh, is included in the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die book. Rolling Stone ranked Heat at number 28 on the list of the 100 greatest movies of the 1990s. Uh, the Guardian ranked it number 22 on the list of the greatest crime films of all time. Uh, the film is actually a remake of an unsuccessful 1989 television pilot, also directed by Michael Mann, called L.A. Takedown. Uh, and Michael Mann just recently, just within 2022, uh, released helped create and uh, provide the story for a prequel sequel novel called heat Two, very creatively titled titled. Uh, and he is saying that he is, has intent to develop the novel into either a television series or a movie. Uh, I was made on a budget of $60 million gross $67.4 million in North America, and then $187.4 million worldwide. And rotten tomatoes has an 88% critics and 94% audience. So that is the numbers on heat. So, uh, at the end of the day, Bobby, Heat in your top 100, and what do you think of that legacy? The legacy, I think, is a little lacking, to be honest with you. Uh, as far as the Academy, that's that's one thing. But the legacy, as far as shootouts go, this is one of the all-time great shootouts. Top 20, easy. And I, I think that's the part that is forgotten in this film, is is just and, – and the screenplay is very well done. Um, as much as I just ripped on the ending, you've got two really solid performances coming from your leads, plus your 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 co-stars uh, supporting cast are all amazing. So I, I think that this film should have a little bit better rating than it does. Um, definitely, it's it's in the hundred thrills list for sure. But I, I will say that I do think it's about 15 to 20 minutes too long. I think they could have chopped some of those uh, sequences down, not the shootout, but um, but like the ending could have been five easy, five minutes shorter and, and just pick and choose some spots. So, it, you know, it, it's a longer film and that might be its only real downfall. So, yes, this is in my top 100. It is towards the bottom of my top 100, but that shootout alone will always keep it in my top 100 no matter what. Great film. Lori? I am surprised by the legacy. I'm surprised that there wasn't at least one Academy Award nomination. It is a great film, but it is not in my top 100. But I do agree that it was a little long. But I don't think the ending was where it needed trimmed. I thought there was some, uh, and definitely none of the chases and high scenes. It was, it was. Um, I, I don't know. I thought some of the, the uh, interpersonal scenes kind of dragged a little bit. Well, I remember seeing this in the theater, and I and and I always felt at the time that I was not in the mood to see this film. I just spent all day moving from one apartment to another, and it was hot. Uh, and I was tired and everybody wanted to go see a movie, went to a movie theater. It was one of those movie theaters where you can lift up the armrests and you could lay down. 
Uh, and so I did, and I kind of dozed a little bit during the film and I, and I, and I never really saw it. And for a couple of years, you know, I saw the, the, the important parts, but I got a gra you know, kind of got the gist of the film and, and it's a film that every time I watch, I like a little bit better, but I've never liked it as much as everybody else has. And I don't, uh, other than it, and the only reason I can explain that is kind of what Bobby and Lori just said. It's too long. It's, it just, it, it does kind of drag. There are some phenomenal sequences in it and a, one of the best casts of all time. I mean, it's just, it, I, I had not seen this probably in 20 years and that I'm like, oh yeah, Natalie Portman was in this. I forgot all about that. Oh yeah. You know, Xander Berkeley was in this, who was also in LA takedown, by the way, I believe he played Wayne Grow in that, um, you know, it's like, oh yeah, you know, all, all these people are in this film and just doing small little parts and they're great in it. And so it's, as I said, it's one of the best casts. It's nowhere near my top 100. It's a good film, but it's, I, I do think it's a way, way over long. I think the, the story is pretty fairly simplistic and you could have probably cut easily cut 20 minutes to a half hour out of this uh, without losing any of the action action sequences. Although I think the ending should have been a little shorter. Um, but, uh, yeah, de definitely not my top 100, but a decent film, but this is Matt's pick. So he gets the last word. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of the criticism. It, it is, it is a little too long. It's not a perfect movie. The, the personal scenes can kind of drag. I think, I think this movie would have been better if it was maybe 15 minutes shorter, maybe even more. I think there are at least two performances Definitely De Niro's and Val Kilmer's that should have been nominated in – I don't know if it would have been 95 or 96, but they, they fit in either one. And I think this is better than a lot of movies that were nominated for Best Picture in that time. So I think they got stiffed by the Academy. Like Bobby's mentioned several times, the, the shootout scene with the bank robbery really makes this movie both from a just fantastic action – standpoint the sound is incredible it's very intense and it it erupts so quickly on you amid all this drama that it really feels like there's some actual stakes in in what's really one of, i think the all-time great action sequences is one of them uh, and from a character standpoint the way um val kilmer just sees those police and just immediately opens up which again just shows you what what kind of guys these guys are what kind of people they are Without that, without that scene, this movie isn't in my top 100 or probably anywhere close to it, but it ties everything together so well. So this, it's not a perfect movie. It's not at the top of my list. It, it's a solid top 100 movie for me. It's exhausting to watch. I might watch it again in 10 years or so, but it's, it's definitely in my top. All right. Well, that does it for this month's review of Heat. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little monthly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. As we stayed before, you can follow us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Don't forget to subscribe to our account on YouTube. Uh, once again, we're releasing our podcast exclusively. Uh, subscribe to our account there, ring the notification bell, and you'll get uh, updates of when we post new material. And you can give us a like, dislike, or leave a comment about our opinions, or make a suggestion for a film that you think we should review as one of the top 100 films of all time. 
Well, that does it for this episode of Movie House Memories. Join us next time when, once again, it is Bobby's pick. And we stay in the 90s for 1999's Notting Hill with Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts. Uh, Until then, I'm Patrick. And I'm waiting for someone to hold my hand while I fade away. I'm Lori. And I have a flight to catch. (laughs) And we'll see you all next time. And we'll see you all next time at our house. is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Movie House Memories, Hiding Your Reality, is provided courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com under Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.